Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Basti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Delighted to welcome my first guest to the programme, somebody who rode 81 winners in a stellar 2018, was crowned champion all-weather apprentice, has now firmly ridden out her claim, is now amongst the top 10 most successful female riders of all time. It's been an amazing 18 months for Nicola Curry. Nicola, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. More importantly, how are you? Enjoying the, the year without the claim, fully-fledged rider, things going as you wanted? Yeah, look, loving it. Going very well. Can't complain. Um, obviously, first year's... You know, you got to go well, you got to prove mm. yourself, you can keep going without that claim. But look, I'm delighted how it's gone so far, so just need to keep the ball rolling. There does seem to be a little bit more loyalty from trainers towards apprentices who have mm -hmm. ridden out their claim now. I guess you're lucky to have got those relationships pretty solidly based with, with Jamie Osborne and Richard Hughes. Definitely, yeah. Look, I was lucky to go through my apprenticeship with Richard, and from then on, they continued to support me, do you know, because a lot of trainers would just more use apprentices, yeah. but luckily, look, they've stuck by me, as have a lot of other trainers, so I've been lucky in that part. Take me back to where it all began, because you've got no background in horse racing at all, really, have you? No, nothing. So I was always into kind of show jumping, and a friend of a friend was head girl for Lucinda Russell, and had said, look, why don't you just come and ride out and see how you like the racing. I didn't know the difference between a flat and a jump race then. Um, so I went to Lucinda's when I was about 19, spent two years there, decided, you know, I didn't just want to be a stable girl, I want to do yeah. something about this. Um, I was obviously too light to ever go jumping. So Lucinda and Skew were fantastic with me. They helped me make the move down to Lambourne. Um, still keep in touch with them now. And I came down and I went, started off in Jamie Osborne's. I was there for about a year and a half. Um, and then I went to Richard Hughes's and went through my apprenticeship there, wrote out my claim, which was obviously fantastic. You know, you can't get a better boss and tutor than him. Yeah. And, you know, he really showed me, you know, you have to put your head down and put every bit into it, what you want to get out of the game. Um, and that was great. So I wrote out my claim and we sat down and came to agreement that, you know, it was best to fly the nest and move on. And from then I kind of went freelance and I'm now joined up with Jamie Osborne. So it's fantastic. Um, obviously I started off there, it's nice to go back. Yeah. He's great to work for. I know how he works, he knows how I work. So hopefully it'll be a long journey, a good one. They're two really interesting characters, Jamie and, and Richard Hughes. Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about them more in a, in a little while. When you were growing up, you grew up on the Isle of Arran, didn't you? Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> There's not a lot to say about it. Very quiet. Um, Quite in a good way? In a very good way. Like, it's such a good life. Do you know, it's so laid back. You can 
you don't need to lock your cars, you hardly lock your doors. Um, that's how I got into horses, do you know, there wasn't much else mm. to do at the weekends <laughs> other than ride the ponies. Um, but no, it was such a good place to grow up, mm -hmm. as you say. It was so laid back and it's nice to go back to because it's like a different world. So you, um, your family's still there? Yeah, most of my family are still there, which is great. Do you know, they all live within five minutes of each other. It's such a small island. Mm -hmm. um, it's nice to go back and chill out, different planet. Um, but no, it was good, but it's definitely nicer being out in the big world. <laughs> you know, I struggle to go back and live there now. And obviously there's not racing and there's not the opportunity there. Um, but it was, I think it was great base to start from, you know. Did you spend those teenage years thinking, oh God, I can't wait to get out, I can't wait mm -hmm. to get somewhere where there's more people and more going on? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've been off the island really since I was 16. Mm -hmm. um, gone back for little spells, but you know, it'll last a month and then I just <laughs> need to get back out to the big bad world again. So you, you moved to, to Lucinda and Skew, as you were saying, and then you, you've come down to Lambourne. I was really interested in, in Jamie Osborne as, as the first person to really get you going in, mm -hmm. in Lambourne. He, he's been on the programme several times, enjoys company. What's he like as a, as a boss? He's great. Um, he's very straightforward and he's good in the way, do you know, I'm in there three days a week. So I get to know the horses and he wouldn't give me many instructions, almost none, before I go out and ride a horse because he just believes, well, I train them, you ride them. Yeah. Um, I get to know them at home and, do you know, a race is a race, you don't know what's going to happen, you can make a rough plan in your head but you have to ride it how it comes so he's very good in that way and you know we'll sit down and discuss maybe at the end of the week what runners we've had, what we think we could have changed, where we could go from there on so it's good because you feel part of the team you know and I think he trusts me and I trust him and we appreciate what each other have to say and I think it works, he's got a really good team and some really nice horses coming through so it's exciting. And when I speak to him, I always feel that he's quite philosophical in defeat. Yes, he's ambitious and mm -hmm. he's driven and he likes to win like all yeah. professional sportsmen, but he seems to be quite good at taking defeat at the same time. Definitely, definitely. Um, do you know, one, a, a good example, uh, Raising Sands, Roy Lascott. Um, obviously, I know the horse, I've ridden him. All he said was, look, if it doesn't go to plan, it's just another race, whatever. Just go out there and just prove yourself, prove you're brilliant, and that was it. Walked away, and that was my only instructions. It just gives you that boost, you know. Mm. And and he's right. It's it's a race. It's another race at the end of the day. It's horse racing. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, it, it's good. It's it's laid back, and it gives you more confidence. I find I ride with more confidence for him, you know. Do I detect in your voice that you're still giving yourself a bit of a hard time about Royal Ascot? Slightly. <laughs> I thought I just caught a catch Slightly. there when you were saying that. Yes, look, uh, we couldn't have changed the race. I wouldn't have changed in any way how I rode him. Um, we rode him more handy than normal because we knew there wasn't going to be a great deal of pace. Um, so we had to be up there in case they turned it into a sprint, which they did. Mm. They, went, they finished their last furlong a second and a half quicker than they did last year. So it just shows how slow they've gone early in that testing ground, which didn't suit them, but we couldn't have changed anything. Um, I'm absolutely delighted, you know, to have gone there and finished third. The horses ran an ultimate race, as usually always mm. does. But there was always that in the back of my head, I want to be the first female to get that Royal Ascot winner. So there was, I'm not going to lie, I went back in the weighing room and I was, had a little tear in my eye. But 
it's one of them. Bigger picture, I should be delighted I was there and it was fantastic and he ran his race and we wouldn't have changed anything, do you know? Hard though because everyone wanted mm -hmm. you know, a piece of the story in the morning and through the afternoon and you were being very accommodating with all the media requests. I know mm -hmm. you went for a little sleep in the wang room, didn't you, yeah. to try and get out of it all yeah. a, bit, a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think you can go to any race and you can be on an odds-on shot in the back of your head, oh, it's horse racing, this might get beat. But I think because there was such a build-up to it and I'd spoken to so many people, I think they made a thing, you know, you could, you've got a live chance here, you could be the first female. Since I then Gay really, Calloway, yeah. Since Gay Calloway, of course. Um, I then got it in my head, I thought, you know, this really, really could happen. And I got so excited mm. and thought about what I was going to say. And everybody does, you know, you all dream and there was that just slight disappointment when it didn't happen. But I can't think like that. It's racing and just, as I say, he finished third. We wouldn't have changed anything. There was no hard luck stories. Should just be happy to be there, so... Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Welcome back, you're watching Luck on Sunday. Nicola Curry still with me and has been joined by Sean Quinn, son and assistant to trainer John, who's enjoying a fine time of things, and by our very own regular, Mr Neil Channing. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for coming in. Thanks for having us, Nick. Yeah, it's good to be here. And Neil looking yeah, quite smart by your standards. Well, I was expecting a pair of shorts. Very and sweet a... of you. I, I, I... Looked through my collection of shorts and I couldn't find an appropriate pair. <laughs> so you're fully trousered. <laughs> and trousered plenty of cash, I'm sure, over the weekend. Mainly thanks to Nicola Curry, who, who rode a winner for you last night. It was very, that was good. But it was a very up and down weekend, actually, generally. I think it started off quite well in England. And then as we went over to Ireland, it got less good. But, what was good? What was bad? Uh, and the Irish derby wasn't great for me. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about that. We are. Bit, but, uh, I'm not sure yeah. it was great for anyone, yeah. apart from Porig Beggy. I'm, I'm nearly cured of backing Mad Moon every time it runs, but uh, I think I might be now. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 James Willoughby and yourself were rabbiting on about some breeze-up horse. That was impressive, wasn't it? That, that was very she wa impressive. She was. Said Breeze Up Post we were rabbiting on about. We will rabbit on about yeah, some more a little bit later yeah. on at Newmarket. But you talked me into that one. That yeah. was good. Good, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased. Six to five on. Yeah. Sean, your, your attention has <laughs> been focused either side of the Irish Sea as well. You were at York yesterday, but more importantly, the cover for the opening day of the Irish Derby <coughs> meeting. And El Astronaut, what a legend this horse is. Yeah, absolutely. He turned up again only um, 13 days after going over to Cork and winning a listed race. He carried top weight uh, in the Rockingham on Thursday night. And uh, I, I think he probably put up his career best effort uh, in that race. There's it, quite a few of them really to good. choose from as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, to, 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 to sort of lead his rivals a merry dance, as you, as you see on, on screen here. Uh, we'll come into the two pole now. He's, he's still on the bridle and he's got some very, very good horses hard at it. And I know that um, because our own horse in the middle, their Lord Whitford, <laughs> is, is under the pump. He comes to hit the front in the middle but cannot put a, put a finger on El Astronaut. It was just a, a really impressive performance. Stop the tape here and you must have been thinking, oh, this game's easy. We should go to Ireland and plunder all these races. We're going to be first and second at this point. Yeah, although I'm never sure, sure it's ideal finishing first and second because you've got two sets of owners to keep happy. And uh, of course, one, if one's beaten the other, it's, uh, it can sometimes be a bit awkward. But Lord Ridderford ran a, ran a blinder. Uh, as I say, he, I think he was the only horse uh, to finish in the six from a single figure stall, uh, just emphasising how important mm. the draw was on, on that occasion at the Corail Astronaut, of course, came out of 14. 
I mean, there are better horses in training mm. than El Astronaut, but it seems to me that every yard would just love one of those. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just a bit special, isn't he? Yeah, most, most definitely. I mean, we've, we've trained better horses than him, um, but if you ask me which horse I would most like to own, he would be top of the list. And maybe that's because of his longevity as well. He's now a six-year-old. He's won every year from two to six, and he shows no sign of stopping. Hopefully, he'll be around for years to come. What's the plan? Um, he's in the Sapphire Stakes at the Curra on the 20th of uh, July, I think it is, Nick. And um, so we, we sort of tested the water with regards to the track uh, the other day. It's, it's a, a stiff finish at the Curra, as you know, and uh, he seemed fine on it. So uh, all roads should lead back to the Curra, hopefully. And Nicola, you've got horses that you've been associated with. Raising Sam would be a good example of a horse who just keeps turning up time and time again, and you can pretty much rely on them giving their, giving their best. Yeah, like they're the ones we all cherish. We could do with a few, few more of them. We were just talking about that outside, El Astronaut there. Um, but yeah, look, Raising Sands has been massive for me, and he does turn up every time, mm. do you know? He doesn't run, he'll only run a couple of times a year when the ground's right, but we know when we go there, we're always in with a strong chance. And, and you know, Sean, like, horses have aches and pains and difficulties like, like we all do yeah. occasionally. So. Essentially, if a horse is that consistent, the high likelihood is they're running through that. Yeah. If they, if, they, if they have got little issues, they tend to be able to sort of mask those a little bit. Yeah, funny enough, a Friday morning after the horse had won back in the yard, Dad said to me, of all the horses in the yard, I might have to scope this horse. This horse might always be on a little something to help him through. El Astronaut has never had so much as a, an aspirin, a mm. disprin, whatever. Mm. He's never had anything for... The last two years, we've never we've never even had to stick a scope down him, Nick. He's just just bombproof, really. Yeah. yeah, your health is your wealth. It's all that all Absolutely. over again, isn't it? He yeah. is the ultimate cash point, isn't he? He is. He is, <laughs> and long may it last. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the other stable stars a little bit later on. I know you want to talk about Safe Voyage, who's been fantastic for you th for this season. But a man who was a, a stable star for you for a brief period was Porig Beggy. <laughs> rode, rode for you and your father for a little while, didn't he? He did. Um, Porig uh, found opportunities running thin in Ireland, as a lot of guys and girls do coming out of their claim, I suppose. And uh, he, he tried his hand in England. He, he's, he tried it up in the north of England. He rode winners for us um, and, and is a very, very good rider. Uh, that has never been doubted, um, but just probably didn't get the opportunities in the north of England, uh, found himself venturing off to Australia on the, on the back mm -hmm. of that, but uh, it's been remarkable to see how his career has un unfolded since, and, and we're all very happy for him. It's amazing. I, I, he hasn't ridden many winners, no. but he's ridden the Derby winner and mm. an Irish Derby winner, Neil. I think somebody just pointed out up. yesterday that yeah. his, his average Average prize money per ride was 156,000 euros. Yeah, they were saying yesterday, it's like Kaiser Suze or something. He just kind of pops up and uh, nobody really knows if he's real or anything like that. He, he, he is real. He is real. Time. Yeah. And it was real yesterday. However much you don't want to believe that Sovereign won the Irish Derby, Sovereign did win the Irish Derby and he did so from the front. And of course, it begs all sorts of questions about what on earth everybody else was doing. Well, Broom missed the kick, so that was him sort of done and then had to go wide, Sean, but they clearly, Porik Beggy has clearly got the fractions right Absolutely. On, on a horse who should have been attended a bit more sharply by the rest of the field, surely. Yeah, I think so, and I think here's a significant point. After, after going a furlong, Seamus Heffernan just sits back off, off the, the, eventual, the leader and the eventual winner, and um, from here on in, Sovereign just has a, has a lovely time up in front and, uh, and is, is unhassled. 
on the, the front end. And that pace it always described as the, the universal bias, Nicola. And if you're there, it's a good place to be if you're, if you're paddling your own canoe and, and going the pace that you want to go. Definitely. I think it's, it's massive if you can get on the front end and dictate if you know what rhythm your horse likes and if you can get your fractions right, then on the ground to suit your laughing, really. And that's it's, exactly what he's done. It's so funny because this is always described as doing it the hard way, isn't it? But actually, you know, like getting a soft lead has got to be the best way to win races, hasn't it? I mean, it used to work quite well for Martin Pike. Uh, just have a look at Mad Moon further back in the field. I mean, you just said you've been cured of backing Mad Moon, and and Chris Hayes I, I has come in and said he did a lot stay, of times. But... You know, I, 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 I kind of wondered before the Derby whether stamina was going to be the problem, and uh, I don't know. I mean, it seemed okay in the Derby. It didn't look like it was stopping at the end. It, it, it just a horse outstayed it, but because you know Anthony Van Dyke is a strong stayer, isn't it? It's a, it's. People are talking about the Saint Ledger now. I, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 clearly there were things about this. You could talk about this race for hours, really. It, you know, it, you see things like this at market raisins sometimes, don't you? They <laughs> get a dodgy start, and suddenly one's ten clear, and the others are regretting it. Um, but. Uh, I don't know. You know, we have the St James's Palace stakes now to say that the Derby form's very strong. But there's that that photograph, that classic photograph that got shared a lot. The five of them, the, the five of them the in line. a line with like a hundred yards to go. I mean, that tends to sort of say to you, well, this can't be strong form then, doesn't it? In a way. I mean, I know it's the Derby, and that's supposed to always be the best form, and classic form is the strongest. But uh, maybe it isn't a great Derby. How do, you, how do you read yesterday's race, Nicola? How do you try and rationalise it? Because you've got a horse who's never run to a racing post rating of anything higher than 104 in you know, a dozen races and he'd only won a Galway maiden on heavy ground and goes and wins. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Look, I, uh, I like how he's done it. You know, you can, if he came from the back, I think we'd all be thinking completely different. We'd of be course. looking at it a completely different <laughs> way. Um, but I, full respect, I think the way he's done it, yeah, he's got got his own way in front, he's got a nice decent gallop and he, he's done it nicely, do you know, he's not had to battle hard at the end. I definitely um, don't want to knock the winner, I mean he's he's gone away from Norway. Uh, who's know. a pretty decent horse. <clears throat> yeah, exactly, although, you know, and also to an extent, like before the race people were saying those two horses were going to be the two that made it, so I don't know why it's such a surprise that they made it, <laughs> you know, I mean, that it's just a bit... I don't know. I mean, in races, have you ever been in a race like that where you suddenly think, oh my God, we've let these go too far mm -hmm. and you've got to suddenly panic and there's nothing really you can do? Massively, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Sure, it'll happen quite a lot, especially on quicker ground, it can mm. happen more. Do you know, one will rattle away at front. It can happen a lot at Lingfield on the straight mm. track. Um, they'll set up in front and you'll sit thinking you're clever. They've gone far too quick. But just some of those tracks, especially there, they can almost just get away from you and then you're on the back foot and they've nicked the race before you know mm. it. And uh, people who know the Curra better than I do say that if you do get on a roll on that ridge, on a front runner and you're up against the rail, it, it is pretty hard to peg you back. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think um, it's easy to, to try and um, fathom as to why those horses that finished placed or, or maybe disappointed didn't uh, get to the winner but it's also worth noting that it was the winner's only his second attempt over a mile and a half he's got mm. a stamina laced with pedigree yeah. Nick 
and these Galileos, when they get up to middle distance trips, they can just come into their own. I, I watched uh, the rerun of the derby this morning, uh, the English derby that is, and um, he, he led them a merry dance in that, but of course he went very, very fast and didn't really get let loose, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, with the, the likes of Telecaster in behind, Circus Maximus, they were all sort of on his heels, as was Norway again, and uh, and that wasn't the case last night. And Porig rode him that day as well, so he'd had a sit, he understood what sort of horse he was on, I guess. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and uh, you know, he, he, he just had an easier time of things, but I think we, we shouldn't um, take from Sovereign too much, because it was still a, mm. a mightily impressive performance, and the distance that he put between himself and Norway mm. is probably the most <clears throat> significant um, thing in, in my mind because he, he's beaten him fair and square and Norway had every chance to get at him. Uh, as regards the other horses at Anthony Van Dyke and Mad Moon it, it was James's contention when we were talking about it last night and Ruby Walsh's contention on this channel that the, the riders on Anthony Van Dyke and Mad Moon were too worried about the, their positioning relative to one another rather than their positioning um, contingent on the pace of the race and the way that the race was developing pace-wise. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, quite possibly, although um, on the on the replay of the, the Irish derby, you look when they come past the seven pole, Ryan Moore was just niggling on Anthony Van Dyke, mm. so it wasn't like he was on a horse that was, that was running away, in my mind anyway, uh, and he was aware of what was going on, but he maybe just didn't have the horse underneath him to, to sort of tab on at that crucial that stage of the race. So oh, I, I kind of agreed with what you said, but I was thinking like if you were riding Mad Moon and you know you've got possibly a slight stamina doubt <clears throat> and you want to be ridden for, for speed and you know that Anthony Van Dyke's a proper stayer and you're hoping you're just going to get carried into the race and then you're going to win a sprint. <clears throat> What the hell do you do suddenly at halfway? You can't, there's nothing you can do, is there? You've, you had your plan and it just didn't work out. I mean, the one thing about having, having so many runners from, from one stable is that when you do get the fourth or fifth or sixth string winning, which does happen mm -hmm. occasionally in these races, and Aiden swept the race again and it's an amazing achievement, uh, everyone's sort of thinking, well, I'm quite work out what's gone on there, and they find it quite hard to work out what's gone on. Does it, does it diminish? the race in any sense for you, Neil? Uh, I think you should try and go on what actually happened and what you saw more than what your perception was in the, uh, you know, build-up. Uh, and I think, generally speaking, people are more willing... I just... My thoughts is always how is the market reacting to this and how a future market's going to react to this. And uh, because, you know, that's, that's what I do. So I, uh, my feeling would be that the betting market will slightly discount this as a fluke mm. more than it ought to. And therefore, the way to exploit that is to just take it on face value. You know, that, you know this horse has won a group one doing handsprings and it's probably a decent horse. I wonder what where he'll turn up next. I mean, I, I don't know what the obvious what the obvious programme for him is, to be honest, to, and where he'll land up at the, at the back end of the season. Maybe he'll land up in the St. Ledger. Maybe everything will land up in the Ledger and Aidan will have the first five over the derby in the Ledger. Yeah, you'd have to think he, he looks uh, an ideal Ledger candidate, doesn't he? And uh, going back to what I said, he's got a, stam a pedigree laced with stamina. Mm. Um, that, would, that would appeal as a, an obvious end of season target. But here's the thing. Have we seen a really good three-year-old this season, Nicola? in any division? Uh, I think we have, but as I say, nothing massively stands out, you know? Yeah. 
because I mean when we came into the season we were expecting fireworks weren't we from Tudan Hot, mm -hmm. from Corto who we haven't seen yes you know Anthony Van Dyke Shaw was bubbling under but you know, 10 sovereigns we were expecting big mm. things from the ones the, the horses we were really hoping mm. would set the season alight haven't really shown up have they either literally or yeah. metaphorically no most definitely as you say 10 sovereigns was as exciting a horse um, as as was touted at the start of the season, um, yet he was put in his place at uh, Royal Ascot. Advertise um, has uh, has emerged as a, a real sprinting star, mm. and uh, you know he might be one to, to fly the flag for the three-year-olds. He's cr he's having a crack at the the July Cup, I believe, shortly. So uh, that'll be fascinating. Well, it'll be interesting to see how Advertise gets on in the July Cup, and it'll also be interesting to see how the uh, two-year-old pattern pans out for the rest of the season and normally the railway stakes is the exclusive preserve of Aidan O'Brien as is the Irish Derby. The Irish Derby was but yesterday it was Ger Lyons who spoiled Aidan's party in the railway stakes and did so with a serious serious racehorse. Let's have a look back at it. The other significant point to this race is that Ger trains this horse Siskin for coloured Abdullah's Judmont Farm so it's a massive result for the stable in all sorts of respects and uh, the horse looks a a serious racehorse, doesn't he, Sean? Absolutely, he's uh, he's as good a two-year-old as uh, as we've seen this year, Nick. Be be that in uh, in England, Ireland, or France, I believe. I think he is uh, firmly on course to, to become the champion two-year-old. Um, I believe his next target is the the Phoenix Stakes, and and rightly so. Uh, Joe Lyons looking to to win that Group One in Ireland that's, uh, that's evaded him thus far. Um, looking at the race here he's just so so comfortable at every stage of the race Nick Romero uh, is, is leading them along nicely but he starts to come under the squeeze here Colin Keane just looked to have a, an absolute armchair ride on the horse and when he asked him to go about his business I was so so impressed with how he quickened away from Monarch of Egypt initially uh, put the put the race to bed and, and then probably has, has done enough and um, maybe maybe just just idled a bit in front which allowed Monarch of Egypt to, to get as close as he did, but I believe that Siskin was definitely the the best horse in the race, and by a long, long way. We often talk about domination in Irish racing. Yesterday, it was Joe Lyons' domination because he had a treble featuring this horse, Siskin. I'm delighted to say he's on the line now. Uh, Joe, good morning. Morning, Nick. How are you? That I think goes down as a good day in the books, doesn't it? Yeah, even even by my standards, I have to be <laughs> walking away with that. Yeah. Um, I know you in the stands beforehand. We just had the double. I were watching the horses down at the start for the red for the for the for Siskin's race, and um, I said to Kerry, "This is a cruel game." I said, "We've had it a double." I said, "If this horse gets beat, gets beat we're going to go home very disappointed." <laughs> I know you always set extremely exacting standards for yourself, but in Siskin, you and we yesterday. Uh, witnessed a, a performance of real two-year-old two excellence. Was it, was it a performance that the rational part of your brain essentially was expecting, even if the irrational one was starting to doubt? And listen, well, let's not get carried away. It was a five-horse race. He was the best horse in the race. He had to prove that, and he's done that. We haven't. Maybe there's another good one around that we haven't seen yet. I'm never surprised when Aidan produces whatever he produces. So we're on course to where we had planned to go, which next race is the Phoenix. And this is just a very straightforward horse, Nick. I can't claim any credit. And we get up in the morning, we feed him, he eats. We put a saddle on him, he rides out, and then he eats his grass. And he's out here eating grass at the minute. He's, he's just a temperament to die for, and he's very, very straightforward. We don't do anything special at home. We know he's well. And um, 
when he gets beat, we'll know there's one better than him. <laughs> is that usually the case with the better horses you train, Jer? Are the better ones normally the more straightforward ones or not? It can be the case. I mean, you tend to say that, you know, the easy ones, the, the good ones are easy. But, I mean, it's harder to win with an ordinary horse. If a horse has very little ability, you have to be at the pin of your colour to win a race with him. And, um, you know, the programme for a horse like this just sorts itself out. So you don't have to do as much thinking about it. Um, and listen, Nick, we're 20 years doing this job. And yeah. I'm just glad that finally we've got one that puts a smile on your face. Uh, you've had a few that have put, maybe not a smile, but just a sort of gentle hint of an upturned <laughs> corner of the mouth in the past year, though, haven't you? Just a few, but there's always been, there's always been something to take the smile, wipe the smile straight off your face very quickly after it, you know, as, as is the case in our game. But uh, we're not going to get carried away. It's baby steps. We're blessed. We've got a very good horse. I'm more chuffed. I know it's nice to have Siskin, but I'm just... I can't tell you how um, proud and happy we are to have Caleb Adul in our yard. It's just that's that's the story for me. Like that's, yeah. that's what makes makes my career worth worth doing. Tell me a little bit about how that that relationships developed between you and uh, you and Judmont, and and sort of how you reacted to to getting horses from from what's a, a tremendously powerful operation. Well, it's like everything else. I mean, the game without being cliched, but you're as good as your last winner and. We've been consistently training winners over the last few years. We've been up in our game. And then all of a sudden, God placed a little man called Colin Keane in my lap. And he's, without question or doubt, the best jockey around. And thankfully, we were able to put him on winners. And he's raised our pro because he helped make him champion jockey. And when, when big owners are looking for a trainer, they look at the winner board. And thankfully, we were, kicking, we were scoring goals at the time. And we came on their radar. And... Um, Listen, Rory Mahon is is very very good pal of mine. He's a neighbour. Fairness is not far away from where where I train, and I'm, I I can only assume and, and imagine Rory Mahon hard for a crush to have the silks in his yard. You know, so I'd be grateful of that. You know. And you said that Colin Keane was head and shoulders the the best jockey. And what I love about talking to you, Jerry, is that you know, you are wholehearted in the, your support of what and who you believe in. Um, what makes him, for you, stand out? What makes him head and shoulders above any of the other good riders in, in Ireland or, or the UK? Well, that's not being disrespectful. Not at all, no. Fantastic, but, you know, I, I think Dunica and, and Joseph before didn't get any credit uh, for how good they are because, oh, it's OK for the riding daddy's office. But that's not what this, you know, that's not fair on them. If you stand behind them, guys, they're... They must be two, three stone below the natural weight. So what they're doing every day is is phenomenon in itself. Um, what, in answer to your question, like it's easy to stand behind talent. I mean, the the hard you know the hardest thing is to do nothing. And it's very very easy to confuse them. And I mean, I was asked yesterday by one of the journalists on RTE, you know. You called and I laughed at him and I, I sort of made the quip, he's starting to sound like the BHB or the BHA asking questions. I said, you don't give top jockeys instructions, that's their job. You're the trainer, you leg them up. And as Frank Dunn said to me many years ago, when you leg a jockey up for the next 10 minutes, you don't own that horse. You know, it's over to, as, as Porrick Begley proved yesterday. Oh. 
I, I'm fascinated to know what you made of the Irish derby, um, tactically and as a result and as a as a, a piece of as a piece of history, I suppose. What what was your view on it? I'm not surprised. Um, you know, it's, I'm we're with these guys day in and day out. I mean. I've watched Jamie Heffernan year in, year out. I mean, Jamie Heffernan's the best rider, uh, uh, most experienced ra rider over here. He played three horses in red. And he's watching what's going on. I mean, if their first string isn't clicking, their second string isn't clicking, the fifth string that's behind them is going to click. And we need to beat them. Um, I mean, you can carry it away. I mean, if Sovereign was in my yard, he'd have the pedigree to die for, and he'd have been running the derby. Um, it just so happens to fit string for these guys. And... I know John Magner said the other day, I probably tongue-in-cheek, that he was putting the, net, the next runner in to keep the each-way punters happy. <laughs> uh, you know, back in the day, Vincent O'Brien, I remember what was quoted as saying, if you don't know what your derby horse is, you don't have one. And that was probably true for every other trainer on this planet, apart from Bally Doyle, because the scene has changed with them, with the, the talent that they have. So in, in, in fairness to Aidan, I mean, I know, like, he's won a derby, and the team are probably disappointed down there. I mean, how, how ridiculous is that? You know, that it's a little bit like El Secreto a few years ago. You know, the wrong horse won the derby, and staff and seats were, were messed up. The, the, as I say, I would say, high class forum, they've won a derby, and this horse, it's just something we're used to over here. You know, you don't have them guys better than Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. Delighted to welcome to the studio, alongside the uh, incredibly successful Nicola Curry, the new incoming chair of Women in Racing, Tallulah Lewis. Tallulah, welcome. Morning. And we have spoken quite extensively on this show to your predecessor, Susanna Gill, who's done great work in this area and I know has been working very closely with the BHA's new diversity and yeah. inclusion team headed up by, by Rose Grissel. But we've got some, some concrete data this week that I know you want to talk about and share with us. Yeah, phenomenal piece of data come out from Vanessa Cashmore um, who does uh, a University of Liverpool MBN is now doing a PhD um, all on female um, jockey performance and they're kind of underestimated by the betting public um, so there's some really great stats that have come out of it to really hit home again that jockeys who are female are just as good as jockeys that are male. Which we, we know and understand anecdotally, and Nicola and I were speaking about earlier on, but just just talk me through how this these findings were, were achieved. Just talk me through the numbers. So Vanessa was given access to um, some of the BHA data, so a data set of over a million uh, points and kind of spanning the last 15 to 16 years, so a really comprehensive bit of data which is really nice to work with um, and the statistical analysis that she's done one of the key points that came out of it was a female jockey riding at nine to one had effectively an equal chance to say if a male jockey was riding the same horse was coming out at eight to one so really interesting that there's this kind of underestimation of female jockeys still out there that we need to kind of do away with. Nicola just um, on that point we're talking about Royal Ascot and how you desperately wanted to be that first female jockey since Gay Kellaway 32 years ago to, to ride a winner. The study that was published in the lead up to Royal Ascot showed that, in essence, women jockeys hadn't really 
been expected by the market to ride any more winners than they had. And that really it was only Hayley Turner who, who I think had been expected by the odds aggregated to have ridden one winner at Ascot before she did. So mm -hmm. it, was a, it, it was looking a, a pretty big mountain to climb for a number of years. Do you think that mountain is less big now? Definitely. I am surprised it's gone this far, do you know, but it's definitely getting better. There's a lot more females coming into the industry. Um, I can see why they would, you know, expect Hayley Moore. She's been in the industry a lot longer than the females that are riding just now. Obviously, Hayley Kathy Turner, Gannon, yeah. yeah, obviously with Kathy Gannon retiring, um, Hayley's obviously been in a lot longer than us. Um, but I think she's obviously given us a great stepping stone again to help it go further forward but i am i am surprised it's kind of taken this long mm. you know because you don't feel when you're going racing day in day out that you're any different from the guys that are riding is that right 100 percent um in terms of the way you're treated i mean by the industry definitely definitely no not at all um i think do you know when you first go in i remember being a seven pound claimer going into the weighing room it's very intimidating because Really, realistically, we are females going into a man's industry. Do you know that the way it's it's been over the few years? Also, there's a lot more males. The valets are in the males' room. Um, we have to go in there to get our weight and everything, and it's an intimidating place. Mm. But I think that's just the way it is. I think we have to accept that. Do you know? I never knew that. So the the shouldn't there be a valet come and spend some time, or a female valet in the in the women's changing room? Or just a women's changing room? There is a women's changing room. Yeah. Well, not there hasn't been for quite a while, and now they're starting to come in more in most race courses. Well, there, are, there is, yeah. but there's no. We don't have our own valet. But you in don't the have you, you don't room. have your own provisions essentially. No, no, do you? no. We we go into the males to sort out our weight and everything. Well, that's something that could be looked at, isn't mm. it, Talula? Well, and Rose at the BHA, who um, has been brought on to kind of work with the diversity and racing steering group, that's one of their key points and their key focuses over the next year. They've just been doing a massive audit of all the female changing rooms at race courses to ensure that the provisions are there. Mm. So that, you know, there is a... Where the physio is, the physio is not based in the men's changing room, it's in a neutral room that, mm -hmm. you know everyone can use yeah. and then the same with the valets you know it's small tweaks like that will make your job a lot easier to kind of get on with what you need to do and not having to worry about navigating rooms mm -hmm. yeah that's it that's interesting isn't it it's probably something that you 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 don't give that much thought to because you just accept it as the way it is but uh -huh. if and when it changes necessarily you'll probably have a great appreciation for what you didn't have that you should have had in the first place. I think so. I don't think we almost have to go as far, we've, we've actually been talking about this quite a lot in the weighing room, I don't think we have to go as far as almost as having our own valet because then, then I think we are separating female to mm. male jockeys. I think we're, we're all jockeys, do mm. you know, it mm. shouldn't be, mm. um, I don't think, I, I don't want to be known as a good female, I want no. to be known as a good jockey, but Obviously, there's a lot of improvements because there's not been many females. I mean, some of the weighing rooms you go in, you can only fit two people in it. Do you know? And you, if you have an apprentice race or one of these ladies' races, you can't move and... But it's, it's to be reasonably expected. And your yeah. point, your point is, is totally right, but it's to be reasonably expected that you should have the same comfort and exactly. convenience mm -hmm. as your male counterparts. Exactly. And I understand for a lot of, as I said, likes of claimers coming in that don't, they might not know any of the males. It's a very intimidating place to walk into. Um, you might not know anyone and obviously you have to go in there to get your saddle sorted and 
obviously the tea rooms you mutual, so you can go in there, but I know a lot of people would be feel intimidated, you know, walking in front of all the lads and whatever else. Obviously that's just something we've got used to over the time because that's just been mm. the way it is and that's just what I'm used to. I actually have my peg in the lads bit now. I wouldn't you know, I'll obviously get changed in the female, but then between each race I'll sort out my hat silk and my colours in with the lads because that's just you know, we'll be able to talk about racing, what we're going out to do and it's where most of it's it's all happening, do you know? Yeah, um, you don't you don't want to be sitting on your own. Exactly. Exactly, or just exactly. two of you, whatever. But I can completely understand how, do you know, things have to change. And there is a lot of the weighing rooms out there that need to be upgraded for females because, you know, there'll be a lot of them have just got one shower and it's just a nightmare, little things like that, you know. That's not great. And Tulu, obviously this is something you're working on with, with Rose and those statistics, as you were saying, are pretty encouraging. How does racing do, do you think, overall, first relative to other sports ad administrations uh, and second just in, in, in relation to society in terms of uh, gender balance, awareness, <coughs> pay gap and so forth. How do you think we're doing? So I think we're doing very well if you look at a kind of our attendance. So we actually as a sport 39% of attendees are women which is much higher than in any other sports. So they're around the kind of 18 to 20%. So we're already doing really well on that. Our entry to the sport is a split of 70-30. So we're smashing it with people coming in, which is great. What we then suddenly kind of get is this drop-off, which might be to do with some of the reason you spoke about, Nicola, which is, you know, 11% of professional jockeys are female. Mm -hmm. How are we at 11% when entries 70-30? And so the data behind it is really interesting because at least it gives us something to kind of drive for, to change those statistics. And it gives us the reason to kind of go, you know, Yes, they are out there and we know it needs to change, but I think if we've got something to back it up to say, let's change, we can do it. And the sport is very aware of it. You know, I think you'll know from the race course teams, they're always trying to be really accommodating and make sure mm -hmm. everyone has the right environment. Yeah. But I think, you know, things women in racing try to do is, you know, the mentoring programmes that we have in place are for those circumstances when, if you are brand new into the industry as a jockey, having maybe a, a you know, older jockey who's a female guiding you through that system on the first day you go racing could be something really interesting that we could help bring in and I know Rose's team is looking at that kind of start to finish of the life of a jockey who's female to kind of work out where those barriers are. As a woman in racing's workplace how important is it to have senior female role models at the, at the tops of these companies as you know, just going into work on a day-to-day -day basis how differently does that make you feel about your job? I think if you have that. on a personal level for a lot of women, it's you need those people to look up to and you need those people to see. But also from a business's perspective, we know that when you've got a diverse kind of board or diverse senior management team, a business does better. So there's kind of both to it. You know, you want people there and role mm. models, but also if you want to be successful as a business, you want them there as well. Because it's not just image, it's diversity of thought. Yeah. It's bringing different concepts. It's not a case of men versus women. It's a case of just different ideas and different approaches. I think, you know, if the decision makers making the decisions about, say, how jockeys who are female are navigating their way through the industry are all male, then there's a blindingly obvious problem there. And luckily we don't have that, but that kind of swims through all the way into different areas of the industry in order to make sure we're making the right decisions we should have that diversity across the top. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai.
Booker is doing enough in front in the first time blinkers and Toomey gets him home. Boy, that was hard work. It's an easy win. Moaleshi for Kevin Ryan and Brian Toomey. It's Rowan Road in the hands of Brian Toomey now. Starting to draw away from Gilzine. Rowan Road takes a few lengths out of Gilzine and going to the line. It's Rowan Road who wins again. Whiskey Ridge is strolling home. He got into a lovely rhythm and jumped well. It's the lad who sees it out of the line. The career of Brian Toomey, which was curtailed by an horrendous fall at Perth six years ago this Wednesday. Clinically, Brian was dead, and he was told when he came round that he'd had a 3% chance of survival. He didn't just survive, he made an extraordinary return to the saddle. And now, age 30, he has his sights on a career as a trainer, I'm delighted to welcome him to the Luck on Sunday studio. Brian Toomey, good morning. Good morning. Um, it, was, it was the worst fall any of us can remember, the worst injury any of us can remember from which somebody has recovered. And your story has been uh, an extraordinary one. Most importantly, how are you now? Um, I'm very good. Uh, I can't quite remember the old Brian, but uh, I, I feel good now. It did take a long, long time. It was a very slow recovery, and I didn't let on how hard it was, and it did take a long, long time. So, do you remember anything about the, the fall itself, the incident itself? And I know you've, you've quite happily watched this and will quite happily watch it. I don't know how, but you do. Yeah, uh, I've watched it qu quite a few times. I try to work out if I did anything wrong, but... It's just well, listen. It's one of them falls. I mean, as jump jockeys, we get we we get many falls, and it, it all depends on how you land. I just was unlucky. I landed quite awkwardly. So just just tell us exactly what happened to you. Um, well, when I had the fall, um, I lost consciousness for six or seven seconds. Um, so I was clinically dead for six or seven seconds, and then I was rushed to the hospital and I mean like there's one man that um, I can't thank enough and a very was a very good friend of mine Brian Hughes um, Brian Hughes was the first person to pick up the phone and speak to my family back home and tell them how serious it was I'm sure um, I'm sure Brian has made easier phone calls in the past but um, I, I can't thank him enough and my family can't thank him enough like what he was like in the early stages, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, so I was rushed to the hospital with a three percent chance of survival. Apparently, um, can't quite how they worked that out, but it's quite interesting to be fair. And um, then they worked out that my brain was swelling up so much that um, they had to remove part of my skull to make room for the brain to swell. And I mean, my family came over to face the worst. I mean, like I. I was unaware of, of all this, like it, my family went through very, very tough times and I mean to say that my uh, my funeral was arranged, I think my mother had my organs don donated, which I was quite upset about to be fair, she was giving away my organs, <laughs> so um, it, was, uh, it, it was very, very serious and I spent 157 nights in hospital. 157 yeah. nights in hospital. Mm. What's the first moment that you can recall now from that period? Um, 
it's a tough one because obviously when you get such a serious head injury, obviously memory was very ba very badly affected. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, I, I had quite an upsetting phone call on the way here. I was just chatting to my mum and we were going back over everything that happened and I, I didn't even remember my family uh, in the early stages and my memory was very, very bad and so therefore, and I was on a lot of medication after, even when I came yeah. out of hospital and stuff for seizures. Um, so my memory was very, very, um, very weak. Uh, so first things I can remember was, oh, it was, it was um, my sister got married the July afterwards, and I can remember bits of that. You can remember just bits and pieces yeah. of, of your sister's wedding. Yeah. Um, you you say it was very difficult for your for your mum, or obviously it was, and, and, and for those around you. Can you pinpoint a moment where you believed in yourself that a recovery to near normal was possible? To be honest, I hit a big low during my recovery. There was times there where I was really beating myself up about it. I was really doubting how much more I was going to recover. I mean, I was, I was very, very down. and. I didn't let on to anyone, um, which maybe I would have been. It would have been better if I did. I could have maybe I could have I've got some help with that. But I mean, there was nights there where I was laid in bed, just just completely doubt myself, thinking like, well, like, what's ever going to become of this, or am I ever going to get the life like back that I had, or the goals that I have in the future, like, am I ever going to achieve them? Could you identify with what other people were telling you? because you were obviously feeling something inside and everybody else could remember Brian before the fall. Were you struggling to reconcile what they were telling you about Brian before the fall with how you felt as a human being after the fall? Yes, I do, and it was a difficult one because people were saying, oh, how well I was doing, and they kept saying how well you're doing and all that, and from the word go, I was trying to like play it down and try to let on that this hasn't affected me too much and that I'm like I'm, I'm, I'm no different. Even though I've looked at pictures of it since, I've have half my head removed, and it's, I, yeah, I, I get it. And people were trying to slow me down as well because I was trying to rush yeah. things and I was trying to get back, back on a horse, and I was trying to, I was doing, th I was doing things too quickly, um, so people were trying to just, just, like, like take things, like, tell me to take things slowly. How did you react to that? I have a lot of regrets. I mean, I won't lie, I, I did hold it against a lot of people and I felt that people were... I felt people were trying to put, um, like, like a big barrier in front of me, like, and I, I, I did... I, I, I apologise to everyone who I've, who I've kind of, like, held it against, but I... I was too independent for my own good and I was trying to, I was trying to do everything myself rather than like, get the advice off people that knew me beforehand and people could see like, how well I was recovering and, and stuff. So. But it's incredibly difficult because society tells you to be determined and to be strong and to kick on and push through and that's what you're trying to do and then quite understandably people who love you want to just take you back a little bit so it's, I think it's now people would entirely give you a bye given, given what you've been through to lash out a little bit and to say no this is what I want. Yeah. Because um, maybe it was a bit of that strength of purpose that was the reason why you're sitting there now. I am. Um, I mean like 
I won't lie, like my, my willpower and determination has been has been unbelievable. Like I didn't, I wasn't laid in bed feeling sorry for myself, thinking like oh like this like I like from the word go I was like I was up, I was out, I was I was trying to be as busy as I could and trying to trying to work towards my future as much as I could. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but if I was laying laid in bed feeling sorry for myself, it would have really it would have really put a downer on my recovery. So what you're saying to me now is that you you still can't really recall anything from pre the fall. Is that is that right? So how how have you gone about putting the pieces of the jigsaw back together and to try and build up a picture of of your early life? Oh, to be honest, um, I don't know because we're lucky. Like as jockeys, I've like I've watched all my career back nearly at this stage. You know what I mean? I've I've it's all, and my memory was very bad affected, especially in the air, in, in the early stages. Like, I mean, my mother it quite upset me actually. My, my mother was even saying on the, on the phone that like, obviously I had to, I had to learn how to walk again and how to walk in a straight line again. And I think she said how, how to learn to make a, how to make a cup of tea and and, and again. But it's uh, it was it was hard to listen to that. But I um. My my memory did has improved a lot, yeah. and there is things that I can remember about the past, and I can remember everyone now, and I can remember I can remember parts of my I can remember parts of the career I had. And what about your what about your early childhood? I mean, that's I I remember little things, but. Maybe that's part of getting older as well. I don't know. It's, that might be just a head injury, like. But I can remember parts of it. But yeah, it's there is a bit that's a bit weak. And what about what about relationships that you had before the fall that you then were 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 trying to sustain afterwards with friends and family and loved ones? Could could you did could you pick those up again, or did you essentially have to start from scratch? I mean, I have a lot of regrets and. I want to apologise to everyone, anyone that I've ever, that I've ever, like upset or, or put distance between us since the injury because like that wasn't me. But I was just, I was just so driven, and I, um, I went through a time of, of literally like, I cared about myself, and I, I put myself first, and like that's not me. Like I wasn't brought up to be like that, and that wasn't the old me. But I was just, I was so keen to achieve what I wanted to achieve, and. People were trying to put me off it. No one thought I would get back. Um, so I was trying to prove everyone wrong. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.